Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi there. Just to let you know that before we start the show, I had a slight issue with my microphone when I was recording today, so it sounds a bit different. It's still a great show, though, so let's get on with it. The Guardian. The Prime Minister insists his government did everything they could to prevent 100,000 people dying from COVID-19 in the UK. But could it have done more? I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. I am deeply sorry for every uh, life that has been lost. And of course, as, as, uh, as Prime Minister, I take full responsibility for everything that the government uh, has done. Boris Johnson apologised to the country on Tuesday evening as the death toll in the UK surpassed 100,000 people. However, his assertion that everything was done to save lives left many experts angry. So did decisions made by him and his ministers throughout the pandemic add to an already dire situation? As we take stock of that number, we can also look with a bit of hope to the vaccination programme here in the UK. As rows boil over about a supply to the EU, will the UK still manage to hit its target of vaccinating the most vulnerable 15 million, including all over 70s, by mid-February? All this talk of vaccine success, of course, has some Tory MPs demanding a roadmap out of the lockdown. Will the government bow to pressure from its own backbenchers once again? At the weekend, Boris Johnson took a very important call from a new resident at the White House, Joe Biden. Biden will be a very different kind of ally from his predecessor. So how will the new commander-in-chief affect UK foreign policy going forward? Plus, the new boss at Unison tells my colleague Rajiv Sayal why there will need to be a post-pandemic day of reckoning for the government over how it treats the public sector. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, the government has many questions to answer over how Britain has reached one of the world's worst death tolls of the pandemic. To talk about this and more, I'm joined by the policy editor of The Observer, Michael Savage. Michael, thanks for joining me. Um, 100,000 people have now died of coronavirus in the UK, and it's a death toll that seems pretty unimaginable at the start, even at the start of the pandemic when things seemed dire. Does this number have an impact, even though, you know, we've seen it ticking up for so long and it has seemed perhaps inevitable. Yeah, I think it I think it very much will have an impact. I mean, you know, when we think back to the the spring when when we were just learning everything by the hour it seemed, you know, there were senior people at the top saying at those press conferences 20,000 deaths would be, you know, a, a good result. Well, we went past that a long time ago and of course behind the the 100,000 figure, you know, there's individual tragedies right across that number, but 
it's also not the full picture either, is it? Because we know for everyone who dies, well, actually several other will have lasting impacts on their health. As awful as that 100,000 figure is, and it's, it certainly is a poignant moment, it's really not the whole story. The whole story is one of you no know, families and, and individuals being very affected uh, beyond those who have suffered deaths in their families and friends. You know, it really is, well, it's a tragedy of really huge scale. It was pretty sombre tone from the Prime Minister last night uh, with an apology. What I can tell you is that uh, we truly did everything we could and continue to do everything that we can uh, to minimise loss of life. But in the same breath saying the government did everything it could to protect people. And you don't have to look very far to find headlines in the newspapers, things like go back to work or risk losing your job or Johnson faces down experts to save Christmas. Do you think that the government genuinely believes that it did everything it could? Things have clearly gone wrong. And when the numbers are that high, mistakes have been made. Obviously, at some point, we will, we will come to have a an inquiry, should think quite a deep and serious inquiry about all of this. But there are certain issues that are you know, entirely obvious already about the, the government response, the, the speed of the response back in the spring. Uh, and, and that's even before you get into individual moments of this crisis, for example, the, the late autumn going into the winter, even before the, the new variant of the virus which makes things much harder. And the government did act quickly at that point. Even then, there was already a lot of calls for more serious action. And then, of course, you have care homes, for example. Did we get that uh, right early on? Clearly, we didn't. There are so many issues. We know mistakes were made, and it's going to take some unpicking. And the question is, you know, how do we learn lessons? Are there lessons that can be learned? Should this happen again? Or even for later on this current crisis? Because as we've seen from the new variant... COVID can change and change quickly and we've got to make sure we have the infrastructure and policies in place that mean we can we can tackle that. You kind of touched on it in your answer, but how much do you think that there is a long there was a long term predictability of that the UK would do badly out of a crisis like this because of the way the state has been cut, the way the economy has worked uh, when it comes to people being on zero hours temporary contract far more likely to go into work if they're sick? Is that something unique to the UK and is that something that the Conservative government's had a part in making? This is where things get complicated because there's more than one thing going on here, aren't there? On the one hand, there is the sort of immediate policy levers, what was done when in terms of the the immediate uh, pressures that the crisis caused. But then there is clearly ongoing issues in the background. If you look in the UK specifically, Uh, you know, a real problem we have had, we knew it was a problem, we did absolutely nothing, was the way social care works. Now, did the way social care works with a sort of workforce that is underpaid, uh, quite mobile, did that set us up for, for not looking after care homes properly? Well, I can tell you from speaking to the people in charge of care homes and association bodies right from the start, they think that was a big problem we knew all these things could be an issue and you know in the future I suspect it's something we're going to have to look at this the bill for the NHS and what we want it to look like after is going to be an issue and quite quickly I would think. It seems mad on the week that the government announces 100,000 deaths due to Covid that we're finally we're expecting an announcement today on the hotel 
quarantine system from Priti Patel, which we're expecting to be um, from the briefings uh, last night, that, that it will be a sort of targeted system, one that does not cover all travellers, but just British citizens coming from a number of key hotspots like like South Africa and, and, and Brazil, um, because you know, flights are already banned from, from those places anyway. What are they hoping this will achieve? What's what's the point of it? I think it's it's a balance that the, the government are trying to strike. Uh, and, and clearly, at the very least, there's a, a debate about whether they've got the balance right. And it's between the practicalities of a plan of forcing people to, to quarantine in, in hotels when they return, as against getting the virus and uh, variants and new variants under control. Of course, there is a overwhelmingly obvious point to be made about a targeted approach, and that is, you know, we, we call these things a South African variant or whatever. The reality is we don't necessarily have a grip on where these variants are popping up. Could there be new ones in other places? The idea that you would lock down specific countries that are already deemed to be high risk, well, is that necessarily going to catch uh, where variants are coming into the country from. Clearly it isn't, but what I think ministers are trying to do here is uh, take this measure, see if it's having an impact. Of course, they have other measures in their back pocket, but of course we've been here before, haven't we, where we try to do something uh, with limited uh, impact and then have to act faster later when things are worse and the people who are worried about a sort of partial approach in this way think that's just going to happen again and actually it would be much better whatever the practical problems of literally finding places for people to stay as they arrive in their thousands each day well you know we just have to deal with that throw money at it and, and, and make sure that variants coming into the country are kept under control as far as possible. Adding these restrictions is probably going to be a frustration to some Tory MPs who have been actually demanding this week to see a roadmap out of out of lockdown and there was the uh, the press conference on Monday that Matt Hancock has, has, has basically had to forcefully remind people that the situation is really very bad at the moment we're still seeing hospital admissions double that of April you know there are some reports this morning there's going to be a roadmap out you know there's going to be a roadmap presented I think we, we sort of knew that that was going to happen around the sort of February 15th review point do you think setting out just a kind of measure, uh, you know, on hospitalizations of deaths, on the vaccine programme, of how restrictions can be lifted, is going to keep the critics at bay? Or do you think they will still demand to see dates for when things will reopen? Well, I think in terms of a sort of broad plans, you know, what, what, are, what are the measures you are going to be looking at when you think about loosening some of the restrictions? Uh, is a, as a sort of not unreasonable ask, and it's something that government will be thinking about anyway. In in terms of what they say, it could actually be incredibly broad, couldn't it? In terms of uh, daily cases, uh, deaths, hotspots, uh, and this sort of thing. What the government is certainly hearing from the NHS, and it's what I looked at last weekend for the Observer, is the pressure on hospitals. So the message from the NHS is going to be very, very strong about not doing anything too soon. And by too soon, that really means lifting anything before the end of February, beginning of March. The pressures there are not just the hospitalisation numbers. It's that if you look at particular parts of hospitals, say uh, intensive care units, that's where people are, are very, very ill. And the average age there isn't as old as you might think. I was told the average age of intensive care patients, ICU patients, was much more around 60, so not people in their 70s or 80s or 90s. And what that means is 
the people in that group aren't necessarily going to have been vaccinated yet or for some weeks. So in other words, in certain parts of hospitals, the pressure is going to be there for six, seven, eight weeks to come. Uh, and so the idea you can you can start loosening is going to be met with pretty fierce resistance, I would have thought, within the NHS. While all of this rumbles up and up on, um, people are continuing to get vaccinated. And so far, that is a success story, the way that the, the vaccination programme is is rolling on. But but things did get a bit heated this week between AstraZeneca and the EU over supply issues. And um, the chief executive of the company said that, that the UK contract was obviously signed three months before the European vaccine deal. So that's why the UK is sort of getting a smoother supply. They've managed to fix the the glitches. And that now the EU have asked for doses to be diverted from the UK to the EU. But, you know, Downing Street will have to, to make that call. Is it just the case of the UK government moving faster, doing better, being able to be a bit more nimble because it was doing it on, on its own? And do you think it's this is going to be a sort of huge political issue between the UK and maybe other countries, not just the EU, uh, over the coming months? Yeah, well, you can you can you can see that this issue of uh, Britain's relative success, uh, which is is clear in, in vaccination, can have its sort of political purposes, depending on your point of view. I mean, you know, was it Brexit that allowed Britain to act on its own in sort of buccaneering fashion to sort of get these vaccines into the arms of patients? And, you know, alternatively, you could say, well, there's a slice of luck here, isn't there? We have an amazing institution who managed to make a, a vaccine and a, an Anglo-Swedish company involved in the mass production of it. And, you know, there's some interesting lessons here more generally about government actions during a pandemic and in terms of the risks they take in trying to deal with it. You know, you might remember at the start of this, the government was heralding a game changer in terms of antibody tests uh, that looked at whether you might have had COVID. We bought a load, a load, load of those and it, it didn't work. And, and that's a case of where we, we acted uh, and, you know, it didn't come off. In terms of the bigger picture, you know, what, what we call uh, vaccine nationalism has been a concern of scientists really from the very start. I remember talking to people back in in March about the need to come up with a way of making sure that you know vaccines were shared equitably as far as possible, not just uh, in the West, but you know clearly in some of those poorer countries that might have uh, not as good access to it. Some of those efforts, you know, began very, very early on. And you just have to hope as the pressure increases on national governments that some of those agreements to share things really hold. Michael Savage, thanks ever so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. After the break, I look at how President Biden might influence UK foreign policy. And Rajiv Sayal speaks to the new head of Unison, Christina McEnany. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, last week, Donald Trump left the White House as president for the last time, making way for Joe Biden, who immediately went to work reversing many of his predecessors' policies. Over the weekend, Boris Johnson became the first leader in Europe to get a phone call from President Biden, an important call in the eyes of 10 Downing Street. It isn't a secret that Biden hasn't been impressed with Johnson in the past, and he is a known critic of Brexit. So how will the new president influence how the UK manages its foreign policy? I invited The Guardian's diplomatic editor Patrick Wintour and the director of the Institute for Government, Bronwyn Maddox, to try and answer this question. I start off with with one of the slightly more surreal rows this week. Um, one of the things that caused a stir ahead of the first call between Joe Biden and Boris Johnson was uh, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy, who she, she described the president as a, as a woke guy and said that, you know, Labour could perhaps learn from the way Joe Biden had this appeal to kind of blue collar voters, but also, you know, was, you know, proudly able to say how he felt on things like Black Lives Matter or, or, or trans rights. And... Johnson really struggled to to say whether he agreed or not. And it seems like quite a flippant question. But there is a tension in this new relationship because Biden feels reasonably comfortable with progressive causes. And Johnson has seen them previously as a kind of electoral issue, perhaps to exploit. Patrick, how do you think he could have handled that question and also how he will handle that tension going forward? Uh, well, yeah, I thought at first, I'm not sure whether he knew what woke meant. He, he really looked struggling. and um, But I, I think he prob- you're probably right. He was wondering how on earth he could uh, square off his cultural war backbenchers and uh, stay close to the new president. So he was struggling, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the intention was to show that he was close and understood where Biden was coming from. But there will be points of difference between the, the new president and the prime minister. And in the end, Johnson became bolder in disagreeing with Trump as he became ever more outrageous. And I think the, the big test is whether you know the UK can have a grown-up relationship with America in which it says it disagrees with the, the president about something. I don't think there's a problem there, certainly not between Joe Biden uh, and Boris Johnson. I mean, there's a there's a nervousness you can detect on the British side. And I'm not sure woke is quite the right word to capture what Biden is doing. It's certainly progressive in American terms. Um, a lot of environmental emphasis, uh, a lot of emphasis on um, in- inclusivity about immigration, which will be red rag to the elements of the Republican side and very ambitious progressively on the financial package. We've yet to see whether that gets through Congress. But these aren't things that either philosophically or diplomatically Boris Johnson is going to disagree with, I don't I don't think. But on Biden himself, um, Biden it, it does have this long record in foreign relations and, uh, you know, in, in a sense has been dealing with the UK and with Europe and much of the world for much of his political life. And I don't think... He's someone who will go in for caricature. Trade's clearly pretty high on on Johnson's agenda, 
Patrick. But it, there was a bit of a difference in the readout of the calls. Um, the UK one specifically mentions trade. The US one doesn't specifically mention it. How high do you think it is on the agenda of Biden's given given the this sort of raft of domestic issues, not in the least the pandemic that he has to deal with? Well, first of all, I think, you know, people can overread like scriptures, these readouts. But anyway, it is true there was no reference to trade uh, in the president's uh, version of the conversation. And as far as I can see, in America, there's a kind of um, sort of contradictory mood where most of the polling now shows people are not as opposed to free trade deals as um, it's portrayed in Congress. Uh, but I think the idea that there's going to be a a UK-US trade deal in the near future is is obviously off the cards. And I think, in effect, Liz Truss, the trade secretary, has admitted as much. I mean, I think they tried to make an effort to get a mini deal through under Trump and they, they couldn't do it. It's just really an issue about where does Biden wish to expend his energy. And I, I think his energy is going to be expended on domestic issues first and certainly not free trade deals. Um, and I think the route out for the UK is to try and join this specific trade partnership. And that might be a way that America could join. And then as a result, you you get some kind of synergy through that route, but not through a bilateral trade deal. Do you think there's actually anything materially different, um, either of you, I guess, between trying to do a trade deal with Donald Trump and Joe Biden? Um, uh, there's a conversation that I recall having with Nick Clegg uh, maybe more than more than a year ago, where he said that um, Biden had specifically told him that uh, when he was um, deputy prime minister that he would never do anything that the chicken farmers of Delaware didn't like. And obviously that sort of speaks to the heart of the chlorinated chicken issue, which will, which is pervasive across, you know, whatever, whoever's in the White House. Or are there material differences that you that you think? Trump saw a, a trade deal with the UK as a way of endorsing and complementing the UK for leaving the European Union. And so he had a kind of a motive to try and secure a deal. I don't think um, Biden thinks there should be any reward to the UK for leaving the European Union. So that that is one thing I think is different. And I think, you know, Trump had this peculiar notion um, deep in his psyche that you had to win in trade deals and, and that you, yeah, you, you mustn't lose. And, that, and um, not quite as trade economists would uh, approach it, saying that both sides can gain. Uh, and so he was always for scoring points. I talked to someone who used to deal with him in property in New York who said, uh, look, you could get any deal past Trump, provided you let him walk out of the room and think he was a winner. And I think we'll get a much cooler kind of calculation from the Biden team about what is in it for the US. Patrick, one area where there is clearly going to be a material difference is on, on things like defence and security, you know, in both, in the readout of both, uh, there was this, you know, as you'd expect to re recommitted to the NATO alliance, something that Trump was was famously very critical of. How has the, the US lack of participation um, and obstruction hindered hindered that work and how might that change now? Well, I mean, I think if you read what I think are really excellent memoirs by John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, there was a genuine concern that Trump might pull out of NATO and that he was so unpredictable that there were meetings that they were absolutely terrified about what he would say next about the relationship. Now, obviously, Biden is very different, but that doesn't mean he also has criticisms about the way NATO is constructed there has to be more spending by European nations and they've got to get closer to this 2% figure. 
I mean, I think there, there are differences, but I think the real debate is to be had about NATO is the one that Macron started, which was this one about whether it was brain dead, whether it had really thought enough about its relationship with Turkey, why was Turkey in NATO? And then secondly, had NATO really thought through enough about the new threats um, the West was facing, whether those might be in the, the grey zone or disinformation? So I think those are the, where the debates might lead in NATO. Well, I mean, obviously, the other thing that affects the the security relationship will be the UK's decision to not be so fully participatory in in, in Europe's um, defence and security. And the UK's kind of managed to 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 be a bit of a a broker or at least a a, a kind of channel between the Europe and the US. And how much do you think it matters now that we we don't quite have that role anymore? Well, I would be surprised if the UK didn't continue to have quite a role in European security, whether it's about the borders um, or about sharing intelligence. The question is is really whether it has a, a separate relationship with with the US. And and there, I, you know, it's it's one of the things. It's very hard to see from the outside, but the depth of the relationship in security and military terms between the UK and the US is enormous. And I don't see that really changing at this at this point. Trump obviously had a fairly fairly erratic foreign policy when it came to particular relationships like like China, which was obviously very very combative, and and Russia, which fluctuated. How, how do you think that will change under Biden, Patrick, and how might that affect the UK's policy towards towards China and Russia? Well, I think that's really fascinating because. Um, the UK is relieved to have a professional, predictable uh, ally again. But there are going to be tensions about China. Ex-Obama people now working for Biden say that you know they've learnt lessons from the way in which they dealt with China so cautiously, uh, and they're going to be much more aggressive. And uh, for instance, um, you know, whether genocide was committed or not in Xinjiang, the Biden team have basically backed what Pompeo said. The UK is being much more cautious about that. The US has slapped sanctions on Chinese officials over what's happened in the former UK colony of Hong Kong. The UK hasn't. So I think there will be actual tensions there. And there's also going to be tensions yet to be resolved between the EU and the US about how to handle China. I think um, the UK is going to see that um, the US continues to be really very concerned about uh, about Russia and China in different ways, and that is um, a stance that I think the, the the Johnson government is going to find fairly comfortable to work with. Um, the same might not be said of the whole of the um, uh, of the EU, and I think you know Germany's reaction to um, both. America's toughness uh, towards Russia and, and China will be very interesting. But I think that that's a quite a congenial and comfortable space for the UK to find uh, the US in. We've got a lot of important summits coming up, which you know are still planned to go ahead in person coming up this year in the UK. The G7 is probably the first time that we'll see Biden on UK soil. But probably the more consequential one might be the COP26 summit in November, um, which is clearly a big priority for Biden and something that they've, incoming officials have conveyed to the UK. Have we started to, to see the effects of that yet, uh, Patrick? Uh, I'm sort of thinking particularly of Alex Sharma's uh, appointment as, as, as uh, you know, just given the sole job of president of the COP26 and whether that's that's a direct effect 
of a new White House priority? Well, I think the UK was looking for someone slightly more um, <laughs> glamorous than the appointment they ended up with, who, who's probably one of the dullest men who's ever appeared on the Today programme and is hardly going to set the, the world alight. But uh, he's quite committed and a dogged figure. And I think there is both in the Foreign Office and in the Cabinet Office, the amount of diplomacy underway on this issue is huge. Uh, and um, going back to the issue of China, everyone's right to think, you know, if we confront China too much about, um, say, Taiwan or trade, are you going to lose uh, Chinese support for the, the summit? And, you know, you cannot do a deal on climate change without China. The real issue, I think, is going to be trying to cajole enough countries to come up with new plans to get to net zero. And I think we do, the UK is quite good at that kind of problem solving behind the scenes. And I think it's interesting also to watch Boris Johnson sort of becoming green. I mean, if you look at his period when he was editor of the Spectator magazine, uh, he was quite regularly publishing articles uh, mocking uh, sort of green agenda. And he's now embraced it. I wouldn't write off the G7 either. You know, governments are really capable of making some decisions together on how to tackle coronavirus, how to tackle the recovery, how to tackle the educational gap. Um, There's a lot there that actually that gathering could address. So um, I think Boris Johnson will be able to make something of it. Um, I think there has to be still a flicker of a question about it. Patrick, last question, but do you think those those summits and uh, and the, that kind of the, the rebuilding perhaps that they might facilitate of the UK's international image, if it's possible, will help Boris Johnson by the end of the day? You know, how much does it matter to him that those things are a, are a big success? No, they're, they're, they're hugely important. I mean, the danger for the UK at the moment is its reputation is as an, an alliance breaker. And this is a year to become a kind of, to do the opposite, to try to build alliances, to try to get into the slipstream of the Biden presidency, which is about, uh, you know, America's back and alliances on the West are necessary. And then it'll be interesting to see whether this particular G7 thing expands in the way that Johnson has suggested, which is to allow Australia, Korea and India to come as well. And then you slightly reframe it as the democratic 10. Uh, And that, again, fits in with a, a theme of the Biden candidacy, if not yet the presidency, which is about backing democracy against authoritarianism, which I think is a, it it can seem a slightly nebulous issue, but another level, it's very necessary. And I think um, this is a big, these two summits are big, big opportunities for the foreign office and for number 10. But one of the things that's really necessary is for number 10 to be just much more focused on foreign policy than it is at present. It'll be a really interesting relationship to keep following. Um, Bronwyn Maddox and Patrick Wintour, thanks a million for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that Christina McInerney would be the new leader of the UK's biggest union, Unison. Having risen through the ranks to be the union's national negotiator, she now represents 1.3 million public sector workers in the NHS, social care, refuse work and local government, most of whom are women. Seen as a supporter of Keir Starmer, her union is one of the party's biggest donors and controls vital votes on the party's national executive committee. My colleague Rajiv Sayal spoke to Christina on Monday. He started off by asking the first woman to head one of Britain's big four industrial unions, whether UK unions have a problem promoting women. 
I think there's lots of really good women in the trade union movement and lots of unions have uh, excellent women leaders and I come across them all the time. I'm friends with many of them. They're women that I look up to and admire. I mean, there isn't a lot of um, turnaround and, you know, general secretary's jobs don't come up that often. And I suppose it's because there's never been a woman general secretary, certainly of my union or any of the big industrial type unions, if I can call them that. And that's why this seems a bit different this time. I've been to many TUC conferences and it always surprises me how male dominated they are. And meetings are still conducted in a handful of pubs. Has a macho culture within the union movement excluded women? To an extent, yes. I mean, when I was a more junior officer and negotiating in different sectors, I would often be the only woman in the room. But that's moved on significantly over the years. And, you know, certainly in my own union, at least half, if not more, of our negotiators, the people who are doing the face-to-face negotiations at national and indeed at local level, uh, will be women. And also, when I was the National Secretary, the lead negotiator for the NHS for seven or eight years, a couple of years back, and I think because it's a a very female-dominated sector, lots of the unions who were involved in that were women. So I was certainly not the only woman in the room when I was doing NHS pay negotiations. Unison backed Sir Keir Starmer to be Labour leader and since January 2019 has given the party just under £3.7 million and it's been reported that you want to give members more say on policy matters. Do you have any plans to review your funding strategy for the party? So Unison's probably fairly unique. I have to say I don't know how the other unions handle this, but in my union, it's um, we have a group called Labour Link, and so it's our members who are also members of the Labour Party elect their representatives to sit in a group on a committee that we have, and they are the ones that take these key decisions. Uh, it's not the General Secretary, it's not even our National Executive Committee, it's the our Labour Link Committee that would take that decision. I'm not aware that there's any plans to, to radically change our relationship with the Labour Party, I won't be pushing for it, but it will be, as I said, a matter very much for our members who are Labour Party members who have been chosen to be the link between us and the Labour Party. Right. And what would your own position be? Would you, given, for example, that Unite and other left, left-wing unions have threatened to cut funding in recent months, would would you be happy to see the union give more money? And would you argue for that? One, can I just say I consider my own union left wing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we are particularly different in that way. We've often taken a radical stand on many issues and I'm sure we will in the future. Honestly, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but this is a matter very much for our lay members to take that decision and I won't be seeking to make a huge to hugely influence on them on this. I stood to be General Secretary of Unison, not General Secretary of the Labour Party, and I made that a very clear part of my campaign going forward and I'm really happy to stick to that. So my view is we've never slavishly backed or supported a leader just because they're a leader. We've always backed leaders where and the party when it's pushing policies that we that are in tune with Unison's policies and policies that we think will benefit our members and public services. And that will be content that that will be very much the criteria against which we will judge the Labour Party going forward. Nine general secretaries of Labour affiliated unions wrote to Labour in December, urging the party to resolve the row over Jeremy Corbyn's status after he had the whip withdrawn. 
saying it's become a distraction. Would you have signed the letter and how would you like this to be resolved? Do you know what? I just feel at this particular point in time when our members are facing massive issues from the pandemic, when the country's facing massive issues from this dreadful pandemic, I don't think it's the top priority for our members. As far as I'm concerned, I'm pretty sure the Labour Party have a process for dealing with this. I'm pretty sure they probably are dealing with it. And it's not one that it's not top of my agenda and it's certainly not top of our members' agenda. Yeah, you quite rightly refer to the fact that many of your members are on the front line of the fight against COVID and are currently seeing unimaginable suffering. You were the lead negotiator in the 2014 strike that saw some 400,000 nurses, midwives, paramedics, etc. at stage A walkout. Given that morale is so low, is there any possibility that there, there will be a walkout again in the NHS? That is my background. I'm a negotiator. I've led many national disputes, including the one in the NHS, and I would never rule out anything in the future. Certainly, you you can't rule out strike action in any of our sectors. Again, at this point in time, people are just trying to get through this pandemic, particularly in the NHS and the care sector. The The word that comes back to us, the constant theme that we hear from our members is they're exhausted. They want support. They want to know they're being supported. And I think the problem we've got is we've got a government that's sending out very mixed messages. So on the one hand, oh, we value NHS workers, we value public sector workers, but by the way, we're going to have a public sector pay freeze. And for the NHS, although they've not declared a pay freeze, what they're saying is they'll wait for the pay review body. We're very clear in saying that the government ought to give NHS workers a pay rise now. And that's not because we think this will solve the pandemic, but because it will actually be a boost to the morale of the workers. Pay does matter. And especially if you're asking people to, you know, go that extra mile, put themselves out, put themselves and their families at risk, as they have done for the past well, almost a year now. Um, and, you know, we hope the end is in sight, but it still feels very much that people are under the cosh and having to really struggle to get through this this current phase of the pandemic. Are you envisaging a, a reckoning once the initial waves of the pandemic have have passed and also the vaccines start kicking in? Do you see then there, there being a crunch point? Two big things I think might happen. One, I, I absolutely think there needs to be a day of reckoning uh, on what's happened. And You know, I accept that hindsight is a great gift, but actually, by any standard, if you look around what's happened, not just in Europe, but in most of the the rest of the world, we've been behind the curve so much of the time. Decisions taken where they knew what the impact would be, but delayed a week, two weeks, three weeks before you actually take a decision. And the impact that then has on infection rates and, of course, death rates. Schools going back for a day, in England. I mean, really, something is seriously wrong with the decision-making process. And there has to be a day of reckoning where all of these things, all of the things that have gone wrong. But the other big worry for us as a public, mainly public service union, is particularly for conservative governments, when there's a crunch in the economy, many of their influential people will think, where do you go to make money or save money? You, You hit the public sector. 
And we know that's what they've done in the past. And my worry is that's what they'll think in the future, regardless of all the warm words and things that have been, that have been said at the moment. That is my worry. And that's when we as a union will you know, decide what we actually do. And we'll be working with, uh, you know, trade unions, other trade unions and through the TUC, STUC, etc., cetera, um, across the UK to come up with a, a, a response to that when, when and if it happens. Christina, thank you so much for sacrificing your time on Burns Day of, of all days and um, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Thank you very much. And that's all from us this week. Before I go, I just wanted to let you know about a really great podcast series that The Guardian launched today, Reverberate, which is hosted by my colleague Chris Michael, looks at six incredible stories from around the world about when music shook history. The first episode is about a singer-songwriter from Worthing who inadvertently got caught up in the 2013 Hong Kong protests, inspiring protesters and angering the Chinese government. Make sure to look out for Reverberate on Apple, Acast, The Guardian website or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Michael Savage, Rajiv Sayal, Patrick Wintour, Bronwyn Maddox and Christina McInerney. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 